Great. What a good video. It really illustrates the point I'm going to make this morning. Um, so, good morning. Welcome at home as well. As I said, my name's Rob. I'm part of the leadership team here. Um, so, welcome. It's great to see so many of you today. We're continuing our series on 1 Corinthians. I'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 10 today. Um, so, if you've got a Bible, now's the time to try and find that. Um, but uh, while you're finding your place in the Bible, quick question. What did you have for breakfast this morning? Who had, uh, who had toast? Anyone? A few? Cereal? Hot breakfast? Okay. Anyone have anything unusual? Any unusual combinations? Not that you're going to share? Okay. For me, I like, quite like to mix up my uh, cereal. Sometimes a bit of two different cereals at the same time. Does anyone else do that? Good. I was re- that's reassuring. I was worried I'd be the only one. That's fantastic. Here's a combination that you might not have tried. Weetabix and beans. Um, I don't know if any of you saw this on Twitter um, earlier in the year. This was a bit of a, a storm on Twitter when Weetabix uh, shared this, this post. Thousands of people responded. It was very funny. They suggested Weetabix with beans. Now, who, who would try that? Who would be willing to try it? Don't worry, I haven't got any hidden here. I'm not going to suddenly pounce on you. A few of you, Ben, you'd like that, would you? Okay. It was interesting that a few days before this post, they suggested Marmite on Weetabix. No, not for you either. No, I, I think I'm with most of you. I'm not sure I would eat this. But why am I showing you Weetabix and beans? Well, because I think this picture proves without doubt that some things just don't go together. And that's my point today. Some things don't go together. And we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 10 that actually Paul says there are some things in our lives that do not, comp- uh, do not go with the Christian life. And he warn us about things that we should avoid that simply do not go for you if you are a Christian. So let's look at the passage, 1 Corinthians 10. I'm looking at the first 22 verses. Uh, It will be behind me as well. Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come, that's Christ. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The blood that we break, so the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake in one bread. Consider the people of Israel. 
Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I don't know about you, but when I uh, read the Bible, I really enjoy making links between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as Sai uh, prompted us last week to, to encourage us to read the Old Testament, because it really does help make sense of the New. And it gives us that bigger picture of God's story. Paul's making a very clear comparison here. The story of the Israelites and the Exodus is a reflection on the story of what's happening in Corinth and for us as believers. If you aren't familiar with the story of the Exodus, um, you need to know it's one of the greatest rescue stories in the Bible, one of the greatest. It's the story of when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh. He wouldn't let them go. God showed his power over their so-called gods by sending the plagues before Pharaoh would allow the people to leave. And God used Moses to deliver the people into freedom. God led the people by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. He took them through the sea, an incredible miracle where he made a parting in the sea so they could pass through on dry land from one land to another, from their old life of slavery into freedom. And then for 40 days, God led them in the wilderness. He provided manna for them, food that would appear on the ground in the morning, and he provided water so they'd never thirst. And twice we see in the story, there were two examples where God miraculously brought water out of rock. So Paul's saying that this story, the Exodus, is part of the Corinth story, and it's part of our story. He calls them, the Israelites, our fathers. So we're part of this story too, this bigger story. And yet Paul also is showing that this, that this, this story is history repeating itself. You see, the story of the Exodus is actually a precursor of what we see in Christ's life. And the, res- and, and the salvation that he won for us. I don't know if you noticed, but Paul tells the story of the Exodus in, a, in an interesting way. He overlaps both stories, or the Exodus and the Christian story. You see, the, in Christ, we were saved out of slavery, just like the Israelites were. And it was through a miracle. For the Israelites, the miracle through the sea. For us, the miracle of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul compares the sea like baptism. The cloud is the Holy Spirit, and the manna of water, manna and water, the spiritual food and drink, is for us communion. The story of the Exodus reminds us of God's faithfulness to save his people from slavery, from old life into new life, into a new covenant relationship with him. And in Jesus, we see that in a greater way. His death and resurrection saves us out of slavery to sin into a new relationship with him. Paul also, though, is using the story to show that history can repeat itself in another way. He warns that the Corinthians are making the same mistakes as the Israelites did and provoking God's jealousy. He says if it happened to them after everything they experienced through the salvation out of, Israel, out of Egypt, if after all that the Israelites could fall, so can Corinthians and so can we. You see, he says these things happened as examples for us. It's not just a story, but examples. As believers, we're part of this story. We are God's people. We have the Holy Spirit. We have baptism. We have communion. 
In Christ we're saved. And yet Paul says, don't be unaware. You can fall too. By overlapping the stories, Paul's showing that we also share with them the privileges and blessings as God's people, but we also share the responsibilities that come with that relationship and how we live as God's people. Or we can share in making the mistakes and displeasing God. Paul says at the end of this section in verse 21, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? He's making a very clear warning to us. This reminds me of a story when I had a warning that I didn't heed. Um, Georgie and I quite like snowboarding. We haven't been for a number of years. Georgie is an excellent snowboarder. She has her own board and her own stuff. In my head, I'm a great snowboarder, but the reality is I'm not so good. Um, I once accidentally went down an Olympic black run um, by accident because I couldn't turn to avoid it. But that, that's a story for another day. But what I was reminded of is that last time we went, because I don't have my own stuff, because I don't do it very often, I borrowed some uh, snowboarding gear from a friend who does go regularly. So he lent me his snowboard jacket, which was great, but he also lent me some gloves and some protection. He lent me these, these gloves that had wrist guards in them. Um, if you've not seen them before, it's like a hard piece of uh, plastic or metal that protects your wrists in case you fall, so it takes the impact so that your arms don't. And he also lent me these, uh, this pair of shorts that have a, a hard piece of plastic in the back that's molded around your behind, just in case you fall there. And as you can imagine, they're not very comfortable. So we went away, and the first day we were going up to the mountains. Um, we were getting all our uh, kits on, getting ready to go. And I didn't want to wear these wrist guards. They were a bit uncomfortable. I didn't want to wear these shorts with the plastic bit in. They were a bit uncomfortable. Georgie warned me, you should wear them in case you fall. And I said, I'll be fine. I won't fall. Snow's soft after all, isn't it? And you can guess where this story's going. Yes, I fell over lots that day. And yes, I hurt my wrists. And yes, I hurt my bottom. And I paid the price. They were hurting for weeks afterwards. I should have taken the warning. Paul gives this warnings here, doesn't he? To the Corinthians and to us. He gives four specific examples that he says to avoid. Firstly, um, idolatry sexual immorality, putting Christ to the test, and grumbling. But idolatry is the main issue in this passage, which actually underlines most of the others. After the Israelites were saved out of Egypt, they then stopped at Mount Sinai. And that's here, it's here where God gave them the Ten Commandments, the rules that they would live by as his people. I'm not going to go through all the Ten Commandments, but I do want to look at the first two because they link directly to Paul's first warning about not being idolaters, as some of them were. You can read the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and it says this. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God makes it clear. He comes first. He alone is to be worshipped. Nothing compares to him, and he is jealous. He will not allow anything to come before him in any form. I don't know if you've ever thought of God being jealous before, Sounds quite negative, doesn't it? But I think when we think of jealousy, we often get muddled up with envy, which isn't good. We're envious of what other people might have. 
envy, wanting things that we shouldn't have or what other people have got. But jealousy is actually about a deep commitment to the welfare or the honor of someone. Think about a husband and wife who are committed to honoring their marriage, protecting the honor of each other. They're jealous to protect their exclusive relationship, aren't they? They won't share with anyone. And that's how God feels towards us. He's jealous for us. It says in the Bible that Christ is the bridegroom and we are the bride. So God is jealous for us in that way. But more than that, God is jealous for his own glory, his own honor. This means that God is going to protect the honor of his name as the one true living God. He is the only one worthy to be praised. In uh, this book, None Greater, by Matthew Barrett, uh, he goes through all the attributes of God, and he says something very powerful about God's jealousy. He says this, Unlike the human emotion, divine jealousy is not a mood in God. Jealousy is not the result of a mood swing for him, coming and going, fluctuating one moment to the next. No, this God's very name is jealous. He does not become more jealous as if he cared about his glory more passionately in one moment from the next. He is jealous for his glory always. It is the essence of his identity. So God is a jealous God. He is jealous to protect the honor of his name. And that's why Paul warns the church. Their actions are provoking God's jealousy because they're dishonoring him. Back to the Israelite story. They've just received the Ten Commandments, but what's quite amazing is what happens next. See, Moses received the commandments, came down the mountain, shared them with the people, and they agreed to them. They made a covenant relationship with him, and they agreed to live by them. So far, so good. Moses goes back up the mountain to receive further instructions from God, and then the people become impatient, waiting for Moses to return. And what do they do? They make themselves an idol if you know the story. They give all their gold to Aaron, who then uh, uh, melts it down and creates a golden calf. And they say, this is the God who rescued you from Egypt. We can read this in Exodus 32. And that's where Paul quotes from when he says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What's amazing is it says that they had a feast for the Lord and they worshipped the golden calf. They didn't forget God, but they just added something else in the mix. And you can understand God's jealousy for them at this, point, at this point. In Isaiah 48, God says, My glory I will not give or share with another. God alone is the one who saves. He alone is the one to be thanked and praised. So Paul says to the Corinthians, Do not be like them. And as we've seen in previous weeks, we know that Corinth was a city that was full of pagan temples. And Paul warns them, you can't worship those other so-called gods and worship Christ at the same time. There's a couple of things I want to pick up here that Paul talks about with these physical idols. He says in verse 20 that they are nothing. These so-called gods, like the golden calf, are no more than what you see. They're a statue. They're an object. They're a sculpture. They aren't gods. They have no power. If you read Psalm 115, it sums it up quite well when, he's, when the writer says, they don't speak, they don't see, they don't hear, they don't smell, they don't move. They're nothing. But Paul does warn in this section that behind these idols are very real demonic forces that will lie 
that would deceive and distract us from worshipping God alone. And Paul makes it very clear, you can't participate in both. It's likely that the Corinthians, as part of the worship to these pagan gods, were involved in very immoral and ungodly behavior. And Paul makes it very clear that any of of these actions are completely off-limits. For us, the idea of idolatry seems quite unusual, doesn't it? The idea of worshipping a statue isn't a common experience. We don't have temples around here, as Jenny told us a few weeks ago. But idolatry can take other forms, and they can be very subtle. Remember, if God, jealousy wants to be first in our lives for his honour and for our good, he is the one that is the purpose of our lives. He's the one who instructs us how to live. He's the one who brings us comfort. He's the one who should be our first desire. He's the one who gives us our identity and our fulfillment. If anything else takes the role of those in our lives, it's become an idol. It could be money. It could be sex, a sport, a hobby, uh, your job, the aim for success, your image, just like all the things we saw in the video at the beginning. In themselves, they can be good things. But if they've taken the wrong priority, they can become an idol. Remember, Jesus summed up the commandments, didn't he, when he said, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Idols tempt us away from God and distract us from him, and giving him the full glory that he only deserves. Okay, it's back to the passage We've seen the first example was idolatry. The second one, Paul says, do not indulge in sexual immorality. Now, it's a topic that he's already covered a lot in Corinthians, hasn't he? In chapter 6, he reminds us that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We must honor God with our bodies. But this specific example that Paul gives here actually links to a story in Numbers 25 that also links to idolatry. The Israelites settle in the plains of Moab, and they stay there for a while, similar to how they stayed by Sinai for a while. And it's at this point when many of the Israelites went to have relations with the Moabite women. As a result, thousands of them then went to worship the Moabite gods as well. And again, they provoked God's jealousy by sacrificing to them. So for the Corinthians, sex was often a part of pagan worship. And Paul is keen to steer them away. And there's a warning for us too, isn't there? that sexual sin, like any sin, will lead us away from God. Tom Wright, in his book, makes this very similar link as well. He says this, In the same way that there is no such thing as casual sex, there's no such thing as casual worship. It's quite a challenge, isn't there? There's no such thing as casual worship. The next warning he gives is not to put Christ to the test. Again, he's making reference to a specific incident the Israelites did. And you can find that in Numbers 21. It's here that they were complaining about food and water. They did this a lot. They said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. You can see they're grumbling, can't you? Because they're complaining there's no food, and then they're complaining they don't like the food. So there must have been food. But they're grumbling, they're moaning and complaining. See, the people questioned God's good plans for them. 
and they questioned his provision. The heart of the issue here is that they complained that God could not look after them, or certainly how they wanted to be looked after. And the next warning about grumbling relates to, the, to that third one. Paul warns them not to grumble. The Israelites grumbled about food, but they also grumbled about Moses and even against God. You can see this in Numbers 14 and Numbers 16. It says, The whole congregation said to them, that's Moses and Aaron, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to another, to one another, let us choose a leader and let us go back to Egypt. See, they complained about God's plans and suggested it would be better in their old lives. They questioned why Moses and Aaron were the leaders as well. We've seen in this letter that Paul's already addressed divisions over leadership, hasn't he? But he comes back to here again because grumbling has this domino effect, doesn't it? You grumble about one thing and you'll start grumbling about something else and something else and something else and soon everything's a problem. The Israelites moaning and complaining led them away from trusting God and instead they went off to do other things, things in their own way or even wanting to go back to their old lives. And Paul doesn't want believers to hunger after their old lives before Christ either. So Paul explains that these are examples to the Corinthians and therefore to us. It's a warning we've got to take seriously. He calls these things evil desires and temptations. It's not about following rules, but actually it's an issue of the heart. And that brings us to verse 13, a well-known verse about temptation. It says, firstly, no temptation has overcome you or seized you that is not common to man. Temptations draw us away from God, don't they? If our relationship was like a journey along a path, then temptations are those things that lure us into different directions and take us off the path and take our eyes off God. It's important we acknowledge a few things about temptation. Firstly, we are all tempted. We all get tempted. No one is immune to temptation. They're common to us all. And it's so important also that we acknowledge that temptation is not sin. They are different. Temptation can lead us into sin, but they themselves are not sin. We see that in Jesus' life. In Hebrews 4, it says about Jesus that in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we can see they are different. And if we look at Jesus' life, we can see yet another parallel to this Exodus story. I don't know if you've noticed this before. After Jesus' birth, his parents took him to Egypt for safety. So Jesus was taken out of Egypt, just like the Israelites did. He was baptized and then led into the wilderness for 40 days compared to the Israelites' 40 years. And in Matthew 4, we see how Jesus was then tempted in the wilderness by the devil. And notice the three things that he's tempted by. One, to perform a miracle to make food. Second, to put God to the test. And third, to worship someone else. Common themes. But unlike the Israelites, Jesus didn't fall into sin. He remained faithful to God. He responded with scriptures and focused on God only. He's a perfect example of honoring God at all times, even in the face of temptation. And this should give, give us hope too, shouldn't it? We see in the second part of chapter, uh, verse 13, Paul reminds us that God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, 
but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you can endure it. This is the faithful God that we have. He was faithful to save us from our old lives and into a new relationship with him, and he continues to remain faithful to us, and he promises that he will help us in the face of temptation. Can I encourage you to read your Bibles regularly? Because like Jesus, you can draw on his word when you're faced with temptation. And can I encourage you to ask God to fill you with this spirit every day? Because we can't do it in our own strength, can we? We need God's Holy Spirit to empower us to say no to sin and no to temptation. So as I close, I'd like to invite the band back up. So just sum up what we've looked at today. The Israelites, with all their privileges did not fulfill their responsibilities to live in a way that honoured God all the time. They still hungered after other things and even hungered after their old lives. But the Israelites didn't disqualify themselves as God's people. Yes, they displeased him. Yes, they faced discipline, but they still remained God's people. The warning is for us too, isn't it, as a church? We've been saved by Christ. And we do have responsibilities to live as God's people too. Grace is not an excuse to do whatever you want because it may dishonor God. God is jealous for his own glory. He's jealous to be first in your lives and doesn't want you to fall when you're tempted. But God is faithful and promises to help you in these temptations. In his mercy, he'll never stop loving you and will love you even when you fall. He is slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, and he is quick to forgive when you repent and put him first again. Amen? Can I encourage you to stand? I'd love to pray for you all and pray for you at home as well. Just encourage you to um, consider if there's anything in your lives right now that you're aware of perhaps that has taken the wrong priority and become first. And encourage you if there's anything that's you're struggling with in terms of temptation to bring that to God and ask for his power to help you through that. Father God, I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you have saved us through Christ, not because of our own works, not because of what we did, but because of what you've done. We thank you that you are faithful to save us and you are faithful to be with us always. We're sorry when we put things in the wrong priority. We're sorry when we let things take our hearts or take our minds and take our strength. Lord, we want to give it all to you and love you with all that we are. Help us to put you first, God. We're sorry when we have dishonored you and when we've fallen. Help us to put you first again. Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to fill us as a people so that we can serve you in all our ways. We're sorry, Lord, when we have fallen into temptation. Father God, we ask that you give us the strength to say no and the strength to stay focused on you only. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness always. Amen.